Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash Wondery, code Wondery. This episode is brought to you by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Welcome to the Rose Podcast number 445. It's a few days before the season finale of, or the mid-season finale of Walking Dead and Talking Dead. Um, Robert Kirkman's going to be on and Lauren Cohan and a surprise cast member guest. Um, so watch that. Watch that. We will help you deal with whatever happens in the mid-season finale. I haven't seen it yet. But I have yet to see a finale uh, where, you know, they were like, oh, we're fine. <laughs> Everything's fine. We're fine. Check back with us in a yeah, few months. Yeah, check back with us. We'll be fine in a couple of months. Yeah. You know. So uh, I don't know what's going to happen. I haven't seen it yet. I'm very excited to say I can't watch ahead, Katie, because if all those facts are stuck in my head, I cannot contain them. So it's it's as much to protect me from myself <laughs> as anything else because um, I would want to talk about it. Yeah. I would want to be my own talking dead. I could just sit on a couch and stare in a mirror. And be like, I'm Chris Hardwick. And then I could thank myself. Thank you, Chris Hardwick, for talking me through this. Uh, I'd like to thank HostGator for sponsoring this episode of Nerds Podcast. Plans start at just how much, Katie? 347. Damn, you're good. Yep. Uh, that's if you want to build a one stop quality web sh- uh, website. That's what you would do is go to hostgator.com. They'll make it simple, and your website's going to look fantastic, and it'll be quick and painless. Let's face it. A, a good.com, there really are not that many left. No. So why not try why not try a .net? Yeah. It's I mean, at one point it was not necessarily the same thing, but essentially it's the same thing now. Yeah, and you can get the name that you want. You can absolutely get the name that you want. Yeah. So if you wanted to get katiefull.net. I could. That would probably sound like a, a, a an adult site, but but if it's not, if it's just things that Katie Levine likes, mm-hmm. you know, it'd be like then that's what you would go to HostGator and get that for almost no money every month. Um, so build your website, get your domain. They have a drag and drop builder, or if you use WordPress, that's fine too. There's no need to code; they make it super easy. Head over to HostGator.com, get some hosting, buy some .nets, and use the coupon code Nerdist to get an extra thirty percent off and support this very program. Or programmy, if you're British. Uh, and this episode, speaking of British, is Thomas Dolby. And I'm, I am, have always been a huge, huge, huge Thomas Dolby fan. That guy to me was like a beacon for young nerds because he just sort of had that kind of like steampunk, almost, you know, yeah. Jules Verne, time traveler. Kind of, and, and, the, and the technological stuff that he was doing was above what, like, 
he had these insane setups that no one else had. I mean, now you can just make stuff on your phone. Yeah. But he he would he had this this setup that was just hundreds of thousands of dollars to create these electronic sounds that he had. And you know, she blinded me with science. I know is the big the big hit. But there's so many other great Thomas Dolby songs. And like Aliens Ate My Buick was a, an album that I listened to a shit ton when I was in high school. <laughs> um, and so I just I adore Thomas Dolby. And when we were doing the Nerdist TV show, I went over to England, and I get to sit down with him. And he basically lives in this house that is uh, next to a lighthouse. And he had a tour oh, okay. called the Invisible Lighthouse yeah. Tour, which was a very interactive tour that just ended. But if he does more, you should go see them. Uh, he did one here at Hollywood Forever um, that uh, that he did just a couple days ago here in, here in Los Angeles. But he basically, his recording studio is um, uh, a fire ship, like an old, oh, wow. like one of those old little tugboaty like fire, fire yeah. boats that would, you know, put out other fires on other boats. And so it's basically parked sort of like how a redneck would have a, like a Camaro up on blocks. <laughs> he has a boat up on blocks, uh, like a British, like a Brit, like a blue neck. Would that be right? Brit- British? Yeah, the, yeah. So uh, that's right next to these old, like, Napoleonic lighthouses that on this beach that he lives. And his recording studio is in this old boat. And I got to go hang out with him there when we did the Nerds TV show. And it, he's so awesome. And then we just went and had tea in Thomas Dolby's house. I just had tea with him. It's so British. And he has these, like, weird, crazy-looking contraptions. It's very much... It's, he very much seems like a mad scientist, but he's a lovely, lovely fellow, and he happened to be in town. And so here he is, uh, a guy that I have adored for many years, uh, the Nerds Podcast number 445 with Thomas Dolby. Now entering Nerdist.com. Thomas Dolby in America! I'm so excited you're here. You know I geeked out on you when I hung out with you at your house. Well, where did we last meet, Chris? Well, the last time we met was uh, I was over in England shooting some stuff for BBC, and we came out to your home on the beach next to the Napoleonic uh, Tower apartments. Um <laughs> And we recorded in Those your... Those aren't very tall, right? <laughs> They're tall. <laughs> okay. And then we recorded uh, in your lifeboat recording studio. That's we, right. We talked for about uh, a half hour, and then you made me tea. And it was it was lovely tea. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> so we... Uh, I was glad to get you here because these guys are also on the show, and I, in this now we'll have some more time to, to talk and chat. So uh, They so. couldn't afford to get us all out there. <laughs> <laughs> they really couldn't. <laughs> no, they couldn't. Yeah. It's BBC. Someone to be honest, our rates were insanely high. That's I don't true. know why we asked for a bagillion dollars. Well, we also asked for the Concorde to be reinstated and to be flown on that. It didn't mm. work out. Yeah. So are you... Uh, is Invisible Light... Is, is, is the Lighthouse Tour done for now? Yeah, I just finished the three-month tour. How was it? Great. Yeah, and I'm I'm a zombie. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm flying back tonight. Oh, you're going back to London oh, tonight? Mm. When you when did, where did you start the tour and where did it where did you guys go? I actually started in Mill Valley at the Mill Valley Film Festival in the US part. I mean, I'd already done uh, I think 25 dates in the UK. Yeah. And then we went uh, across to Florida and then anti-clockwise ending up back in California again. Oh wow! And two shows at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. Yep. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. On Friday night, which was a lot of fun, and uh, yeah, that was the end of it. Which I you had asked me to do, and I was going. I had I said yes, I would love to do that, 
And then my mom said, it was the day before my birthday, and she was like, can we do a birthday dinner? And I was like, oh, all right. And then I ended up, and then my father passed away, and then I ended up having to go do that. So here, I'm sorry to hear that. That's okay. That's okay. So... I totally couldn't be there because of that, so I, oh, apolog- I totally apologize. He's just excited to use an excuse that's viable right now. <laughs> I mean, it does. I do get to play that card. Oh, for at least three more weeks, yeah. Three weeks? You get three full weeks of excuse. I feel like I get a couple months. Yeah, it's a couple months. Oh, no, not yet. Like I said before, Matt, you have no emotions. You have that's no true. place No, to no, say. no. For a grandmother, you get a couple of weeks. For a father, a grandmother, I get you get a, couple a months. day and a half. You're a cold-hearted bastard. Uh, this is the most lighthearted, dark conversation <laughs> I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess t- for the tone is just like we're talking about shopping. Yeah. That's really what we're talking about. So uh, how, how, how was the show received? And how- Mill Valley is awesome, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's great. No, uh, it's gone really well. I mean, uh, I, I project the film and I do the soundtrack live. So I'm playing the score, the score and narrating the film and then i have a live foley artist on stage oh that's oh, awesome Brad. he's got uh, trays of leaves and pebbles from my beach and so on and he's got um stuffed bird wings that he does that with and uh, duck calls and he does the ocean surf with a tray of ball oh, bearings wow. and stuff and he plays guitar as well that's really oh, cool that's really rad. Yeah. is it all is it all instrumental are you singing or uh, no i'm singing there's there's like six songs uh related to the area uh, that you came to um ranging from Cloudburst at Shingle Street and Wind Power that I wrote in 1980 through to To the Lifeboats and uh, Oceaneer that are from my last album last year. Oh, wow. The, is it the uh, the Nutmeg of Consolation? Correct. Yes! It's the name of the boat. <laughs> now, uh, let's talk a little... This is some of the stuff that we talked about when I chatted with you for BBC, but they, could, they didn't use all of it, so I'm going to ask you some repeat questions. But hopefully you've forgotten what I asked you in the last two years. Um... Where where did you start, and what was the music scene like when you when you started, and what sort of pulled you in the, the, the direction of? Because I want to hear about the you had an insane setup, you had an insane electronic setup, pretty much before anyone else had an insane electronic setup. Well, electronic keyboards and synths were very rarefied when I started out. You know, I mean, it, so we're talking mid seventies in London, and. You know, I can remember um, hearing rumors that the Beatles and the Beach Boys had used synthesizers, but the first time they were credited on an album was was Pink Floyd. You know, would mention this mysterious VCS three, and to those of us that were into progressive music back then, this was the first time that a synth had been credited on an album, and that was terribly exciting. But they were very bulky and expensive and didn't stay in tune. And they were really the sole domain of super rich bands and rock stars uh, or university experimental music departments. <laughs> and uh, if you were clever, you could hang out where the skips are behind the university music departments and find circuit boards that you could take home and solder together oh, wow. uh, you know, to make your own stuff. And so there was this sort of this underground electronic wow. scene in London and uh, also up in the north of England. And this is while punk was exploding, you know, in notoriety, which and it couldn't have been much further from punk. But there was this sort of, you know, alter movement going on um, of, of um, you know, electronic pop. Did traditional uh, musician, traditional bands look down on electronic music as like, well, that's not real music or would they did, they ever, did everyone kind of think it was cool? At the no, time? they thought it was not real music. Hmm. They definitely thought. It, I mean, it, you know, it's interesting, right? From then through about the end of the 90s, there was this permanent tussle going on between sort of indie guitar drum bands and electronic 
artists. And um, but it was sort of in a way, electronic music was legitimized. Well, by two things: one, one in the seventies, one in the eighties. That the move in the seventies was Bowie going to Berlin with Eno. And he had been influenced by Krautrock bands, you know, mm-hmm. Tangerine Dream and Kraftwerk and so on. And uh, he was making pop records, you know, with all electronics, which were making it in the charts, you know, things like Sound and Vision and so on. So that was a big deal because Bowie had always been like a mentor, you know, to my generation, uh, sort of musically and fashion-wise. And so the fact that he'd gone over to electronics after, you know, really at the peak of his success with young Americans and fame and stuff like that, you know, over here, he went to Berlin and did this sort of obscure electronic stuff. So that was exciting. The other key moment really was uh, when the dregs of Joy Division, who were really the perennial sort of indie band, uh, reformed as New Order and started making electronic disco, you know, dance music with things like, um, you know, uh, 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 Power, Corruption and Lies, which is the album that, um, uh, you know, that, that their biggest hits came from. And they were using synths and sequences. And that was really exciting. There was a there was something that uh, I never thought about or heard about, and they showed it kind of for a second in the twenty four hour party people movie. Or they, it's, did they? Do you think did uh, New Order write the songs on guitars and then transfer it over and like record them digitally? I think it was probably that they they would get synth grooves going in the studio and then jam along on guitar because it's hard to jam with sequences. You yeah, know? but yeah. but if you play along with guitar, you can do that. Yeah, and. Um, you were saying like the whole punk thing was going on. So like the electronic scene was like its own separate thing with its own separate shows and yeah. stuff like that. And yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah. And, and, you know, a lot of electronic music at the time was about the coldness and the alienation. You know, it was it was Gary Newman up there with lots of eyeliner, with blaring <laughs> neon lights behind him, blasting out and blinding you. And it was, it was really about coldness and alienation. Yeah. That wasn't me, though. I mean, I was more into the, the warmth. I was basically a songwriter that, you know, 10 years earlier, I would have been at the piano like Elton John or Billy Joel or something like that but now there was the availability of synths that gave me a wider palette but I came at it from a different angle yeah yeah and because like uh, and Gary Newman he's with the two-way army was still pretty like that was pretty guitar driven before he turned into just going solo with a lot of the digital stuff right exactly yeah yeah, yeah. but it was really it was really you know his performances on top of the pops that sort of you know gave that whole thing its liftoff oh really and then where does Jeff Lynne come in? To, where does he slide into all that stuff? He's everywhere. Well, I mean, <laughs> not really. He was we had, we associated him with a previous generation, you know, um, because the uh, uh, Electric Light Orchestra were a pop group that used orchestral instruments, used electronics. He's a brilliant producer, you know, did some pretty amazing things. He experimented with vocoders on Mr. Blue Sky and stuff like that. But it wasn't pure electronic music. Uh, you know, and so we didn't really associate with with him. Did you have? Did you ever play with Bowie or hang out or hang out with Bowie? Yeah, I played with Bowie at Live Aid in 1985. Oh my God! <laughs> Was it the first time you had met him, or had you met him before? No, I met him four days before Live Aid. Oh. Um, <laughs> you know, he, he they announced Live Aid, and it all happened very very quickly, as you probably know from the documentaries and history books. But he was in England at the time shooting a movie called Labyrinth. Yes, uh, he acted in at uh, Pinewood or Elstree Studios, one of the you know, studios outside London. And his regular touring band were not available. And so he asked me to help him put together a band in a hurry. And at the time, you know, I think he thought it was going to be a promotional opportunity. So he had a current single, Loving the Alien, which is sort of lost in the sands of time, which he wanted us to play because he said so he'd be promoting his current single. But as he got 
focused on it he realized it was bigger than that it wasn't about that it was about the anthems yeah. and so he kept changing his mind about what songs to do and this band that i had you know that that all had grown up adoring him hanging on his every word we knew all the songs but we never got to rehearse them you know because up until the night before live aid he was changing his mind about what songs to do um but he was very debonair and gentlemanly about it and it was odd because there was a bbc documentary called cracked actor that you may have seen where it was just him as the thin white duke at the height of his uh, <laughs> of, of his addiction and so on there's this famous scene from it where he's got this long long stretched limousine and he's in the back this tiny figure and he's got a carton of milk and he's completely strung out and he's going there's a fly in my milk I'm, I'm like that fly and and I was expecting the cracked actor you know but instead it was it was like Edward Fox you know <laughs> sort of guy the one time that he was like the cracked actor we took a helicopter into Wembley Stadium and it was only a 10 minute flight from from uh, Battersea but, and he's terrified of flying and during that time his hat was pulled down over his head his chain smoking he's going can we land here please no. <laughs> smoking in the helicopter yeah yeah and the pilot was going it's really bad for the avionics <laughs> Mr Bowie could you extinguish your cigarette it's bad for my avionics <laughs> sod off <laughs> he'll be a lot nicer when we land yeah. he's going to be a lot nicer I mean well especially at the, by that point he had already broken way mainstream, and I guess uh, from what I've read or what I understand was he had come out of that period of, like, let's dance and all that. Where, and he wasn't really happy about that explosion of his, his pop career. I'm not sure point. if he was ever happy. I mean, the guy's naturally so uncomfortable, he's got to move on to the next thing, you know, and, and carve out the next chapter. So when, you, when did you start kind of finding, you know, going from tinkering with electronics to finding what it was that was your sound. Because you, for me, you, as a guy who was so enamored of what I didn't realize at the time were sort of, you know, nerdy, heady things, your persona was very much this kind of, like, nerdy, mad scientist mm. guy. Mm. And so I loved watching you as much as I enjoyed the music. Mm. So was that... Was that just a, a natural extension of who you are? Or do you do you feel like you know? Did you sort of search for the persona, or where did what happened? You know, and when I started performing as a soloist, I looked at sort of pinup uh, pop stars like Adamant or Sting or Simon Le Bon, and I thought, well, I'm I'm never going to compete in those stakes, so it's better to draw something out from inside me. Now, I'm from a very literal literary background. My father was a professor of classical archaeology at Oxford University. Oh, wow. My mother taught calculus. <laughs> uh, you know, there's, there's more PhDs in my family than I can, than I can count and uh, a totally non-show business background, you know. If we were watching an old film as a family, six kids in the family, we'd be watching an old movie and if the orchestra welled up because somebody was about to break into song, we, everybody got embarrassed. <clears throat> Tea, darling? But I was like sucking it all up like a sponge. I'd be up on the coffee table, you know, trying to copy Fred and Ginger's steps, you know, mm. and, and singing along with with some you know pathetic you know song but um so i was i was really drawn to that showbiz side and 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 i'm basically although i'm basically introverted i have this sort of exhibitionist streak that comes out from time to time in front of is, is it activated when you get in front of like a because it's it's funny that people you know i find sometimes that i'm uncomfortable with people one-on-one -on -one, mm. but i could there could i could there could be ten thousand people in the audience and i would feel totally fine 
Well, a 10,000-person audience is very anonymous in some ways. You know, it's like it's surreal, I think. You know, I think a small audience is a lot harder sometimes. You can see individual faces. And, and yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm less socially able, you know, and, um, when I'm just with, with one person or with a few people. So I'm, I'm certainly like that. Um, it, you know, I have this odd creative process where I visualize an empty spotlight on a stage. And a guy walks into the spotlight and starts singing a song. What does it sound like? I just strain my ears and I try and hear that first chord, you know, and the first line of vocals. And that's how I write. So it's like I work backwards from, you know, there needs to be a stage. And I work backwards from the stage. And what are we going to fill that space with? Yeah. When was, what was the first song that you remember where you really started to feel like, oh, I, I think I'm on to something. I think there is, a, there, is an, there is an active vein, there is an ore underneath this that I really feel like I can mine for a while. Yeah, well, it? I mean, you know, it was in the early days as a songwriter, I guess a lot of songwriters like this, it was bits and pieces of things. It was an intro here, it was a chorus there, you know, I couldn't really string it all together. But I think I sort of learned my craft as a songwriter when I, when I was still not 20 yet, I toured the US as a keyboard player with a band called Bruce Woolley and the Camera Club. And we were supporting Lena Lovitch, who was a bit of a punk diva, a sort of punk cabaret diva back then. And was she was on the stiff label, you know, so she's label mates with, you know, Elvis Costello and Nick Lowe and people like that. Um, and we toured with her. And uh, it's just when the Porter Studio had come out. The Porter Studio was a four-track cassette machine. You could It only would record on one side, but, you know, a stereo cassette has got four tracks in it, right? Two mm-hmm. on each side. So it would use all four tracks. So it allowed you to do multi-track taping. It had a little mixer built into it. So I had this in my hotel room on tour and a little drum machine, and I was writing songs, and I was very impressed with Lena. I was trying to write songs that I could give to Lena that she would be interested in covering. And I wrote a song called New Toy, and Lena covered it. I played on it, and it went in the charts. Wow. And so that was really the start of everything for me. Well, when did you decide, I think I want to be the guy i think i want to step out and be the solo artist uh you know i I, so that attracted some attention in the industry and as a keyboard player i was starting to get hired for sessions uh i i made cassette i made these cassettes and i sent them around record companies and publishers and was getting nowhere and i nearly got a deal and then it fell through on the day before and i was badly in debt and i left london and hitched a ride to paris in the back of a chicken lorry uh, on the ferry because uh, i got a, a friend of my school friend of mine was working as a busker you know a street musician in, in the paris metro and he showed me the ropes and he taught me how to how to busk and so i spent six months in paris uh you know playing dylan songs for japanese tourists um, but in the midst of all of this i got a call from somebody in england saying Mick Jones wants you, he wants you to do a session. I'm thinking, The Clash! Yes! <laughs> and it turned out to be the other Mick Jones. Uh, also a Brit in a band called Foreigner, and who I'd never heard of, actually, because they were not successful in the UK. And I heard their music, and it was this sort of, uh, you know, hardish rock, you know, radio rock, AOR. And they summoned me to New York, and they l- would leave me all night in the studio, just to fill up tracks, you know. It was the days of, you know, two-inch tape, and they'd say, we got these five tracks, these seven tracks. And they'd go away and come back in the morning wow. to see what I'd done. And it was the first time I'd spent a lot of time in a recording studio, so I would just be experimental. You know? They gave me, like, a menu, like a takeout food menu of all the synths that I could rent. So I'd go, oh, wow. hmm, well, tonight I'll have an OBXA, and I'll have a, uh, uh, a four-voice uh, polymoog. And, and I'd just call these things in, and I'd just play around with them. 
Did you know what they were at the time? Yeah, I knew what they were, but I, I'd read about them in magazines. I'd never had my hands on one. And uh, and so I just messed around. Uh, are you familiar with a song of theirs called Waiting for a Girl Like Wait, You? Of course. Yeah. Okay, so that was a ballad, you know, when they came. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that you playing? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Well, and the intro before that, which is like this sort of ambient, almost like Eno-esque, you know, floaty intro before that. And and I'd dreamed up this technique. Do you know what a mellotron is? Yeah. Okay. So a mellotron has a, a recording of a note of, let's say, flute. You know, a flute plays an A. You record it for fifteen seconds. When you play the key, a little tape recorder plays that thing. Right. So Strawberry Fields Forever mm-hmm. is the yeah. famous example of that. Right. Paul so has, I thought Paul well, has the mellotron. Yeah, yeah. So I thought that you could uh, you could create a sort of a, a studio mellotron by recording a single note of synth on each track of a multi-track tape recorder and then use the faders on the mixing console push them up and down to play chords oh that's oh, right. Wow. so I'd always wanted to do this right so I got a mini Moog and I recorded a bunch of notes and then using the faders I pushed them up and down and I recorded the intro to Waiting for a Girl Like You and I, and I you know I really didn't think that I thought they'd be upset that I'd spent all night <laughs> but they came in and said that's great That's we're going to go with that that's going to be the single you know do so, you get wow. any writing credit on that when you create no, that no no because as a session player, you, you know, you, you're hired for your ability to come up with interesting parts. So, oh, that's so. really that's really fascinating. Like, he's like Vic Flick, but with a with a synthesizer. <laughs> and so, uh, so did you do the did you do the whole album for them, or did you? What? Yeah, well, they actually, they hired me for a night, but they liked it, and they said, "Can you stay and do the rest of the album?" I said, "Well, at that price, certainly, more money <laughs> than I've ever earned in my life, you know, playing music." And so I play. I stayed for a month, did the whole album, and went home with a pocket full of cash with which I recorded my first album. Oh, wow. So nice. I just, uh, and I owned the tapes for those. So, and then, you know, their album came out. I had this Lena thing that had done well, and the record companies were coming to me, and I had a, an album pre-made, and I said, well, this is, this is what you're buying into, you know. So I was able to write my own ticket. What year was that? 1980. Oh, that was 80. Was wow. was she blinding me with science on that album? No, no, no. no. no so that, well, so it wasn't initially. So the album came out as the Golden Age of Wireless, and it, and it was critically very well acclaimed, and it sold about three copies. <laughs> and, um, the critics, uh, the three yeah. critics. But what was going on at the time was. Um, uh, MTV was starting to get into the big cities, you know, starting to be influential. And I thought I'd like to have a crack at doing a music video. So I wrote a storyboard for a music video about this home for deranged scientists and all the rest of it. And I wanted to hire this guy, Magnus Pike, who was a BBC (laughs) staple back then. And I took it to the record company and they said, hmm, interesting, where's the song? And I said, "Ah, I'll bring it in on Monday morning. (laughs) And I went home for the weekend and wrote She Blinded Me With Science. And it was like, I needed to or else they wouldn't give me the budget to make a video. That's so So you had the stage before you had the song. But but writing the story, like writing the visual story first Mm -hmm. and then... Going, oh, I gotta fit something that right. makes sense with this with this yeah, story. Right. I mean, I remember storing it, storyboarding it, at, and I was on the couch, and I had this doctor that was like cross-examining me, and then I started like drawing this this Japanese assistant in a lab coat, and she blinded me with science. And then for the rest of Magna, Magnus Pike's life, people shouted science at him on the oh, guy. It's like, <laughs> why are you doing that? He was so upset because he would just, you know, he he people would come up behind him, you know, on the sidewalk. Science. <laughs> <laughs> Scary. Half out of his skin, 
And he, he was incredulous because he felt, and he said to me, you know, it would appear that your bloody MTV video is better known over there than my body of academic work. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, as an academic, he probably wasn't too keen on that. Uh, well, you know, I mean, with all respect to Bill Nye, you know, it's like you, you know him as, a, as a, character, a personality and a celebrity. You know, you don't really look up how many theses he's been had published. And right, yeah. right. Well, I know at that time, or at least from what, what I understand, from what I've read, um, that so much of the music that essentially drove new wave and, and pop culture at the time came from England because a lot of the American a lot of the American artists were like music television that sounds dumb but the British artists like you know you guys and Duran Duran and Buggles and Trevor Horn and all those people were like well this sounds really interesting like you guys were super experimental with it and so that's why that first that first essentially new wave of music was mm. like Brit, Brit, British pop music yeah I think we were just quick to jump onto things I mean things generally spread ideas spread faster in the UK because there were at the time especially there's only two or three ways that you would get your information you know was two, mm. there were two music, music shows on TV Top of the Pops and uh, the Old Grey Whistle Test which is the late night stoners thing you know so you you know you would get uh, you know you'd get um, Electric Light Orchestra on Top of the Pops and you'd get Genesis on the Old Grey Whistle Test and it wasn't in the newspapers at all so the moment there's a good idea it was all over the island all over the country in no time you know the nightclub owners the journalists the t-shirt manufacturers everybody would jump onto something so we we, we didn't have our own MTV at the time there's no cable in the UK but here's the thing if you were unavailable if you're someone in the charts you're unavailable for Top of the Pops they would show your video if you could prove that you're off touring somewhere or whatever. So suddenly, after Top of the Pops was already getting quite stayed by then, it was always the same thing, you know, screaming kids down the front, the flashing lights, the mirror balls, etc. Not very subversive, you know. But if you said, if you're someone in the charts, they booked you for Top of the Pops, you say, well, unfortunately, the band's touring South America this week, you know, but here's a video. The BBC started showing videos. So, you know, to an extent, we were aware of MTV, but it, part of it was like a ruse so you could get something cooler on Top of the Pops oh, wow. than just them doing it in the studio wow. yeah well yeah because i don't i know people made videos before i mean there, there were definitely videos being made before mm-hmm. mtv but i but i don't know where like the beatles did rain for ed sullivan because they weren't around to do it they made okay. a quick video for rain black sabbath had a couple of videos too mm-hmm. there were videos and a lot of them were concert beatles were first guys beatles were first. <laughs> but uh but i but i guess there really just wasn't there just wasn't i don't know what they did with videos before then before you know top of the pops and mtv i think they were just promotional like maybe just sent them to i, I don't know record labels or something yeah i don't know how they use them anyway i mean there's a lot of shots of you know up the guitarist trouser leg during the solo <laughs> uh, you know not many people writing stories and coming up with concepts around them you know and and i think there was you know there was a honeymoon period after that where serious artists took an interest in their videos you know be it peter gabriel or talking heads or laurie anderson etc you know where it's like wait i'm not just gonna let my label hire any old company to come in and make a video for me i'm gonna write this myself you know i'm going to come up with a concept so it's an extension of what's in the song what's in the music and that was a that was a really special period actually you know it was still undefined anything goes anything could go there were gizmos coming out you know like harry boxes and blue screen stuff and so on that you could get creative with and it still felt subversive you know because the mainstream stuff you didn't we were doing stuff that you didn't see in commercials in car commercials and things you know whereas nowadays of course you know the state of the art is going to be in like a car commercial or something that has a big budget or a big feature film well it's I think in the same way I, I you know the same way that we've seen sort of a paradigm shift in the last 10 years of 
it's it's like every decade an artist has to tack on more and more skill sets mm. to really break through. So mm. watching the difference between the 70s and the 80s of just being in a band to, well, now you're in a band, but also you kind of have to be visual as well. Mm. And now it's the same thing. You have to be visual and you're in a band and you have to know how to market yourself. Like it's just all the things that I think that record labels or you know managers or agencies used to do salt for the artist now the artist essentially has to do mm-hmm. everything well like mm-hmm. uh, you know the story of christopher cross where he was just selling a ton of records and, and then every, videos and then everyone saw what he looked like and none of the girls wanted to listen to it anymore right. <laughs> it's such yeah. a sad oh boy <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> yeah video i think uh, music music videos music yeah. videos hurt a lot of people but then this whole other generation well now it's like it's every band that comes out it's like they have to look like models it's kind of ridiculous you see any new band out it's i mean I think, like, you know, half of Arcade Fire is weird looking, but the other half, they're really good looking. You know, it's just like there needs to be, it's it's so, it's so visual, which is so odd because that's the opposite of what music kind of is, you know? Because mm. you can listen to music anywhere, but you only have to be one place to see it. Mm. And the fact that, like, you know, it's like visually you have to be a good looking person. But you know what? I don't think that's new, though. No? I think the Rolling Stones, you know, benefited from the fact that they were that they looked good as well. That's a, you know, that's they didn't look cool. like male models, that's for sure. Yeah. You know, but they looked charismatic and they were interesting to look at. Yeah, I want to get a collection of like all the weirdest, like the goofiest faces the Beatles ever made because they were just supposed to be these cute <laughs> boys. But like, you look at pictures and they're always just like, "Who?" Huh? Yeah. <laughs> were you were you aware at the time? So when when she blinded me with science broke. Were you aware, like, oh, I think we're, I think there's a revolution that is happening right now. Did it feel that way at the time? No, it didn't feel like a revolution at all, actually, in as much as I can remember what it really felt like at all. Uh, it, no, not a revolution. I mean, it, it was, what, it, what was quite interesting was that I was getting kudos from odd places, you know. I was getting people like George Clinton and Michael Jackson sort of complimenting me on my grooves, you know, and that was kind of nice. And the song was crossing over into, into you know, pretty nasty clubs in the South Bronx and so on. So that that was all quite cool, you know, for a sort of a middle class English boy. You know, that was definitely quite exciting. Was it? Uh, did you enjoy being a pop star, or was it awkward, or what is it? No, I didn't. I was awkward. It felt like I was in a fishbowl, really. You know, I mean, I, I wore little round glasses at the time and people would just sort of their jaws would drop if I walked in a room and the, nobody was normal with me, you know. So it didn't feel good, really. It didn't, you know, I did, it wasn't something that suited me naturally. So when you say that they weren't normal towards you, like what you mean, they, they was just, uh, I don't know, they were, were they awkward or were they were they super ass kissy or were they douchey or like what is how is it? That they... all, all of the above. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my fans have always been quite polite, you know. They're not the kind that would rip you to shreds. Right. Uh, but in the industry, you know, I mean, I, I must have let, met a couple of dozen record company executives, each of which was the one that discovered me. Oh, sure. You know, uh, um, and and they hug you, you know, and, it, and it, they're greasy, you know. And it, <laughs> it, it costs you a fortune in dry cleaning fees, you know. It's like uh, these beautiful suits and everything. But, like, after a record company meeting, I bet they just thought that was, I mean, like if in the seventies and the eighties, I bet like the, the record label system that must, they must've just thought like, this is never going to end. This is, this is always going to be amazing because people are always going to want music and we're always going to control everything. And it's never going to go away. Like what else can I get made of gold? (laughs) No kidding. No kidding. Well, I mean, and they, it was true because there was only one way to get music out to the public. I mean, it was, it was a process, but it started with, you know, a pressing plant, fleets of trucks, 
and manufacturing, relationships with retail stores and malls, relationships with radio programmers. I put relationships in quotes there. <laughs> um, you know, often involving brown envelopes or getting somebody's speedboat berthed or getting their kids through <laughs> college or whatever. And basically they could pick or choose, you know. They, they got thousands of tapes through the door and a guy would sit there and listen to them and, and pick something out and they'd pluck pluck out you know 50 artists and that would be the public's choice at any given point in time you know these are the 50 artists we will give you to choose between and each one of them we've invested a million or more dollars in to put them in the studio and get them on the road and you know print out their satin tour jackets and all the rest of it and it's like they so they were the the kingmakers really wow and they must have believed that they had it all sewn up because there was only half a dozen companies capable of doing that although they were competitive the bosses all met and played tennis or golf at the weekends and if they needed to change something they could do it in a sort of oligopocalistic way is that a word let's say it, <laughs> it can be oligarch Oligarchistic? No. <laughs> Oligopoly? Mon monopolistic, oligopolistic. Yes, yeah, I oligopolistic. like it. So uh, was there, did they lean on you to, well, you have to do this kind of music or you have to follow up with this or did they, were, you pretty much, were you pretty much on your own? Well, they assumed after the success of She Blinded Me With Science that I would milk that formula. Yeah, that was just an assumption. The formula of the music video? and Well, and, and they didn't out and say this, but, you know, behind my back they'd be saying, right, what made it? It was quirky, British, funky pop, you know, synth uh. pop, um, underdog character, you know, wacky hair, uh, fun video. Let's go do that another 12 times, uh. you know. And, and the assumption was in the music business that, you know, you work so hard to break something through that once you actually nail it, you know, you're going to refine that formula and do it over and over again. But the thing was, you know, I'm naturally adventurous. And that was, you know, Shiblami Science was just one of a dozen things that I was trying out, you know, at the time. And I wanted to move on. In fact, the next real sort of uh, chapter of my music career was a lot more personal, a lot more organic, you know, more atmospheric songs. And uh, this didn't really fall in with their ideas. Now, they weren't able to lean on me. They weren't able to you know, deprive me of my salary or anything. I mean, they had no way of exerting pressure on me other than the lack of cooperation. Um, you know, I, ha I had a song after that called Hyperactive, which yes. shot, shot into the charts and then mysteriously fell, you know, like in the third week when it was absolutely on this trajectory, you know, we were saying number one, you know, and all the rest of it. It was getting played all over the radio, mysteriously dropped 10 places in the charts and it turned out to be because of a political battle that was going on between the labels and the radio programmers Ugh. and uh, so and, and you know when something goes wrong you do a post-mortem on it and you analyse all the reasons why it went wrong you know when something goes right you just pat each other on the back and say we're great you, know, <laughs> yeah. you never analyse it and figure out well you know how did how did that happen? <laughs> Can you figure that out though? I mean, is it is it is it lightning in a bottle, or do you think that it is? Do you think that if you had enough data points that you could figure it out? No, I don't think you can figure. I think lightning in a bottle is closer. You know, and in fact, what I've seen in other eras of my career, you know, like in the tech world and so on, it's like history will always record that some genius in a garage, you know, sort of like invented something but in reality it was lightning in a bottle it was a complete serendipitous moment and uh history is is the one that's at fault because you know i mean i'll give you an example right so history will record that steve jobs single-handedly invented the digital music business 
Whereas in reality, Apple put out a new, the Newton in 1988 or something. I, ha- Com- I had one. Complete and utter catastrophe. It was a disaster. Didn't work properly. They had to recall them. Everybody hated them. They got slagged off. Steve Jobs was out. Um, Leckie, whatever his name was, came in. And then during the 90s, people started messing around with gadgets you got the palm pilot you know you got you got uh, these little devices and stuff and somebody at apple was going we're never going there again <laughs> you know keep out of the out of the miniature you know mobile hardware business and in the music world you know we had mp3.com we had napster we had the record companies suing napster the record companies owning napster starting their own portal it was all just a complete disaster nothing was working at all everybody was exhausted so one day you know apple walks in and goes um Excuse me, and we'd actually like to try a, a digital music service ourselves. And they go, take it, whatever. You know? <laughs> Good luck to you. You know, nice to get it off my plate. And so they came in like years and years after everybody else, had, you know, had tried and failed to establish a digital music business, and they got it right with the iPod and iTunes, and now own whatever it is, seventy-eight percent of the market. And the history books were recorded. In fact, Steve Jobs' biographies already record this: that he single-handedly created the digital music business. Like early on, they were always like, they "Here's known- a color, here's a color display, here's you know, here's the Newton, here's this printer, here's this that." Because they, they used to make. They were known as yeah. the innovators. Yeah, but in- they but they took from they they took the they took that well, original they took UI the from, Xerox. from Xerox. Yes, but as far as getting a marketable home PC, that was like that was their thing and then they were like let's do this let's make you know it was, was lucy it was yeah like you know the, we'll do the lisa will be color and then this will be that and then we'll get it out to the schools that was their big ploy was to give give it to schools so that kids would only know apple mm. you know that was sort of their plan didn't really work but uh when that when that stuff happened in the early 90s and the late 80s with like the newton and the stuff like that and then that failed and then they ousted jobs then they sort of took a different approach which kind of became it was it's sort of for a little while up to like 95 96 when you start seeing the power book pop up in mission impossible and independence independence day, day yeah you know and it's like that's what saves the world is the fucking macintosh <laughs> power book because the pc world was making cheaper 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 if you look at it at apple it was always 2500 dollars. you still look now it's 2500 dollars. right it never got any cheaper uh and then they sort of it nothing was working so then they started to put it into movies, put it into TV show. And that's where all their big, all their marketing money in those days went to getting it into television and movies. But here's the thing. So I formed a a tech company in Silicon Valley in the early 90s. And in the early days when I was talking to investors, my board members would come in and and they said to me after bringing in a potential investor one time, look, next time we bring somebody in, can you get the Apple's Macs off the off the desks? Like, could you, we maybe buy some cheap PCs and we'll let you know if we bring in an investor and put your programmers on PCs? Because it's bad enough that, that we're asking them to invest in a company you know, whose business is music. <laughs> <laughs> let alone if they see Macs on the desktops, they're going to think you're just dreamers. That was a huge... Yeah, and that was a huge stigma too uh, that you don't me, remember. Who's the biggest company in the world right now and what, what was their killer app? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's crazy because my dad worked for Hewlett Packard all, when right. I was a kid, right? And, and Hewlett, Hewlett Packard would say, you know, because they would hire me as a consultant and they'd listen to what I had to say, and then they end up saying, "Now, nah, you know what? People get kind of annoyed when we put 
loudspeakers in our computers because the guy, like in the next cubicle, gets upset because he's trying to crunch numbers in his database and there's music coming out. You know, so it's kind of really better for our customers if they're silent. Wow! Is that so? They they hired you to to try to figure out how to uh, create entertainment with the machines as well. No, not not entertainment. Uh, it was the implementation of audio they needed something to set them apart you yeah. know and so they because everybody was microsoft intel you know wintel as it was known so computer makers were looking for ways to set themselves apart so they would think well do we need to do more with entertainment you know should we bundle movies or dvd games you know with our machines and stuff like that so that they, they were looking for any kind of an edge and i was up there in silicon valley but i was from the entertainment world and that you know the, the near the two shall meet at that point and so did you actively seek to consult or did people start approaching it he's like oh i think thomas dolby knows um a little bit of both uh you know i i uh i got an offer from uh interval research which is a research company founded by paul allen who was the you know sure. the other the other microsoft founder and uh it was it was in the mod in the mode of xerox park you know and it was very close same street actually but they hired me to basically try and come up with some interesting interactive music applications so i had a little team of 10 programmers and we basically we came up with apps that are just like what you'd buy on your iphone now for 99 cents you know like here are some blobs you move them around and you remix music and you send it to your friends or whatever we were doing that you know on on the web basically in the middle of the 90s and of course nobody wanted to pay for it what would happen is we'd take it to Netscape or Yahoo or AOL and they, some middle management guy would look me in the eye and he'd go, wow, this guy's gotten VCs to fund this cool game and I'm going to make sure that we have it and I'm going to put the Yahoo logo on it and pretend it's ours and his VCs are going to pay for the whole thing. I'm going to look like a god. Oh, so basically, you know, we, we had millions and millions of eyeballs because we had these great deals with all these people and we were using our own funding to pay for it. It was the most disastrous <laughs> business money and it should have gone up in smoke at the end of the 90s like, you know, most other ridiculous dot-coms did. Um, but we had one deal out of when the dust settled out of all of this. We'd made a little synthesizer that was as small as you could make it, you know, smallest footprint, bits and bytes shaved off here and there so that you could download it in a web page. So it would basically let you click on things and it would down come in your browser. It would download and install itself as a plug-in. And because we've made it really small and efficient, it was exactly what the world's largest mobile phone company needed to play ringtones in their phone. So along came Nokia and said, hey, could you send some engineers out to Finland and see if you can shoehorn your little synth into our phones? And we did that, and we did that deal. And when the bubble burst at the end of the century, we had one deal that made sense with somebody that would actually pay decent money, and that was with Nokia. And you wrote all those original ringtones that came... Mm, no. I, I wrote some of them. I wrote some of them. I, I programmed... Uh, well, my team programmed most of them, including the, the infamous Nokia uh, polyphonic ringtone. Was that the... I didn't write. That was written in the 19th century. And actually, okay, back to the lightning in a bottle. All right, so here's the thing. I'm going to tell you the story of that ringtone. Okay, okay. You can always edit it out. No, no, no. I want to keep it. All right, so circa, I would say 1992 or 93, Nokia had only one building at that point even though they were already the world's largest mobile phone company. They were all in one building outside of um, uh, Oslo. 
And one night, uh, a marketing guy is walking past the lab, and he hears what he thinks is music coming out, and he pokes his head around the door and says, "Ah, oh, you got it playing music now." And an engineer with a screwdriver is going, "No, I'm just trying to figure out, out which the most annoying frequency is for the ring." <laughs> and the marketing guy says, "Oh, but you should get it to play tunes. Could you do that?" And he goes, "Hmm, yeah, I could probably do that." And so he programs in some tunes, gives the the device to the marketing guy who takes it into a marketing meeting and they say this is great musical ringtones fantastic uh let's ship it and the lawyer's coming and go, wait a minute wait a minute you can't just ship music on a phone <laughs> you know we the lawyers of course always want to get involved oh oh why not well you'd have to pay millions and do deals with sony and warners and all the writers and stuff and somebody says, well, what about if, if it's a dead guy? And they said, well, that's probably okay if he's been dead for 75 years. So, well, your tunes, are any of those by dead guys? Hmm. Yes, this one that goes diddly, 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 diddly. So why don't we just ship it with that and see how it goes? Oh, my God. <laughs> Who was the dead guy? Uh, I can't remember his name. Grand Vals is the name of the thing. But he's a, he's a waltz composer, like a contemporary of Johann Strauss or something. You know? <laughs> um, and so they shipped it, and it became you know the most successful jingle of all time. Wow! Wow! So so you know complete um, you know complete lightning in a bottle. Wow. And then of course. Uh, uh, that all exploded, and then now, then they did figure out how to license all the stuff, and they did figure out how to bring the lawyers in. And well, we, we you know, my company was successful during a, a narrow window where the ringtones were still bleeps. You know, mm-hmm. we put this little very very simplistic synth in their phones, and they started shipping them in mass market phone. There was no audio chip in there. There was no sound blaster card in there. They didn't want the expense of sound that. blaster. You know, they didn't want the the uh, liability of buying a chip from Yamaha or somebody whose plant could get hit by a monsoon and blow their whole thing so it had to be in the on the cpu of the actual phone itself which is a puny little processor so we got four voices going for that ringtone thing and that was the best we could do and it was kind of a midi set of sounds but it was a subset so you know piano also worked for guitar and oboe and various other things you know um and uh, so they shipped all of these things and there was a period of time where all of their competitors came and licensed it as well uh to keep up with nokia but then I, st- I didn't like the way they sounded, so I actually created a new file format uh, along with my engineers called RMF, which included samples. So now you could it's – like it's like the first Fairlight, where it was the first time you could actually play samples of real recordings in a phone. And ironically, that I shot myself in the foot because it went from there. All they had to do was multiply the numbers and go from 32 to 64 to 128K you know, capacity. And suddenly now you could use – real recordings you could use you know actual george michael in your phone instead of <laughs> instead of a bleepy rendition of wake me up before you go go you know you could have and, but having an actual recording meant going to sony and licensing the masters so now suddenly it was all about the big record companies and the telcos you know so it was sony and and you know verizon doing deals directly with each other and there was no need for this sort of cottage market that we'd created with the bleepy ringtones so, was, was there any way that when looking back is there anything you go oh i could i should have done this with, yeah. that you could have jumped into yeah yeah in, in <laughs> hindsight you know but nobody's that clever, really. If anybody tells you there was a master plan, you know, there was no master plan. Well, that's part of the lightning in the water. You can't know that that's going to happen. You can't no. know that that's going to catch on. No. You probably, it's probably, the key actually probably is just being very alert to when the lightning strikes in a bottle, you know. Is right. There, and then 
focusing all your energy onto that before your before your bank account runs out. Well, you can't you can't know any better that something is going to catch on than that guy, than that compo- that dead composer who could have said someday <laughs> everyone's going to know the song. They're right, not going right. to. He just had no way. You just you just have no way of knowing. Since okay, so since you're since you innovate in that way and you innovate with sound, uh, is there was there ever anything that you were working on that you really thought like this is going to be the thing that 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 never caught on like was do you have like a a personal pet project that you're like shit it just I just haven't found the right way to make this work yet I'm bad at timing you know it's like I'm I'm usually spot on with what's going to happen but I'm just very bad about when it's going to happen and you know I mean an example would with that would be that in in about 1992 93 you could download compressed music files from CompuServe and people were doing it so you'd think, wow, well, everybody's on the internet. Uh, you can compress, you can rip a CD and put it online on a, on a forum or something, and everybody can get their music for free. And uh, this is going to go absolutely postal, you know, overnight. But years later, it still hadn't caught on. And then, you know, several years later, for no apparent reason that I could make out, suddenly it exploded. Suddenly the downloading phenomenon just caught fire. And it was everywhere. It was every time you open the newspaper, it was about the piracy thing, you know, about the statistics, the music com- music companies losing money and stuff like that. And I have no idea to this day what triggered the actual explosion. Because I thought, well, maybe this is never going to happen. I was bemused by it. I spent at least two or three years thinking, how come that didn't happen? And then suddenly it went off. It's like when you light a firework, you know, and everybody stands back and <laughs> think, oh, it's fizzled. And then somebody approaches it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think it's... Uh... Because I remember for a long time you had to have a special disc burning, uh, you know, drive outside your computer. But then all of a sudden computers just have a thing where you could just put a CD in and it would put the songs onto it. Do you think that's what finally made, like now everyone's pouring music onto their computers digitally? I don't know. I don't know if that's. I think it it might have been a generational thing. I think it was maybe the right age group, sort of coming of age around ninety seven, ninety eight, ninety nine. And then kind of going, well, I don't want to fucking pay for music. I, I think before that, people were, st- I don't know, and and maybe, and then those those young people creating a, a much easier, more viable delivery mm. service. Because I, I, I always think the idea needs the right platform. Yeah. Much in the same that, you know, everyone's trying to figure out digital content and how do you monetize digital content and how do you, you know, and, and I still feel like the right platform hasn't really come along yet much in the way that podcasting was essentially just um you know weird og vorbis super early adopter niche file formats and until itunes was like here is an easy delivery system for all this shit over here that it just the right idea needs the right delivery Mm -hmm. system and those are two kind of a lot of times two different events yeah yeah, no, that's that's certainly true. And if you look, I mean, going back to Apple and iTunes for a second, you look back, you go, well, they had it all wrapped up because they had the shop front and they had the hardware, you know, the the sexy hardware device. And But the thing is, I mean, they weren't the only company that had it wrapped up like that. You know, in the Wintel world, there were others that had it, seemed to have it, you know, mm. ambushed and still didn't succeed, you know. I had my Winamp player, and then I could get the different skins yeah, on yeah. my. Wow, I remember that one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> great. And, and, uh, you know, I, th- I remember thinking the iPod I, when the iPod was in. I was in college, and I was in a uh, Internet Technologies class. And we were talking about the iPod, which was coming out the next day, 
And I was like, this is the stupidest thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> I have a hard drive right here with all my music, plus this awesome book of CDs. I can remember, you know, when you're in Silicon Valley, you do a lot of meetings, you know, over, over a Starbucks or something. I can remember on separate occasions, uh, a guy sitting down and telling me about cells of social activity, you know, where basically people are connected to each other. So it's sort of like email, but instead of it being a private thing, you're sort of connected to all of your friends. <laughs> and so you have these cells and it would grow and grow and grow. And I'm like, hmm, hmm, well, sounds intriguing. You know, I can remember that as a day. I can remember another time when a company told me about community TV channels, about the idea of having a, a channel with 10,000 different shows on it, you know, so that even your lo your local polo club could have their own little <laughs> channel on it and stuff. And and in, in both cases, it was at least five years, if not more, before you heard about any actual product that was making an impact in that in that particular sector. Oh, wow. So are you how active are you uh, in social media? Does it do you I'm averagely active for somebody of my age? I think, <laughs> you know, um, I, I write it myself. Uh, you know, I, I would be embarrassed to have somebody else do it for me, which some celebs do. You know, it would never feel right to have somebody else do it. So I do write it myself. And I mean, I use it for promotion, I have to say. You know, I'll write something saying, only a few tickets left for tonight's show at the uh, <laughs> second show at the Hollywood Forever, you know. And, and sometimes I just do things for fun, you know. Um, uh, Facebook is more like, I used to blog a lot. I've kind of cut that back because I do more, spend more time on Facebook and Twitter and things like that. And my only regret, actually, is that, you know, back in the day, even before blogging, when it was like f online forums and things like that, people wrote really in-depth analyses of my songs and lyrics and things like that. And now it's down to 140 characters. Or so. <laughs> yeah. were, they, were they right or did, that, did anyone ever get it? or were you? I like, didn't no, mind if they were right or wrong, you know. I just liked the fact that the intelligent people were indulging in analyzing this stuff, you know. And they even wrote fan fiction type things where they take characters from my songs you know Europa and the submarine and they write their own little you know things where they just took off on on the 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 mythology really of of my songs when did you go online for the when did you start going online well, I was online from the 80s, you know, with a TRS-80, you know, mm -hmm. uh, Radio Shack with acoustic couplers. And, I had a TRS-80. And, and, you know, when you were on tour in those days, that was the only connectivity you had other than pulling over the tour bus with a pocket full of quarters, you know, by a phone booth, you know. Who else is out there at that point? Because it almost kind of feels, to me, it almost sounds like, you know, <laughs> it almost sounds like, a, you know, you're... Vespucci or something just out in the sea and then you there really was just not a lot of people with ships at that point no like, oh, there were oh, there's a guy way over there hey what's that fucking no, guy no, talking no, about no no it was exactly like that yeah. and one night I got into a chat with Barry Manilow <laughs> <laughs> oh I love that he was techie yeah yeah it was he was very techie and he was hilarious <laughs> how did you know how did you guys find each other like because he was called Barry Manilow <laughs> I write the blogs. That yeah. Everybody else in there was like a tour manager, you know. I remember like oh, the, just, wow. just hearing about the early. Day. So was this on? A, was was this on one? Uh, any particular? For, like where were you going? Was it? Were they news groups or was it forums or? I'm not sure if they had that kind of construct yet. Really, you know. I, I mean, no, I don't know what it would have been in. Those was it like days. a chat relay? Something like that, yeah, like an IRC. Just look like war games. <laughs> yeah, because, yeah, you, you know, even when you hear about the early days of cellular technology, it was like, well, there were only so many channels, and yeah. so 
there were like, you know, just a handful. So if, there were basically, if you wanted to make a call, other people had to not be using right. theirs. Yeah. <laughs> that you might, you know, you might pick up and go, oh, sorry, you're using, you know, like. Yeah. They, they, yeah, my mother like had, house. my mother had the self, the Polestar in a bag, like unzip it and then pull. It was like you're calling to drop a nuclear bomb. You know, like, <laughs> dial the thing. And... I'll tell you what, though. Necessity is the mother of invention. You know, it's like you get when you're spoiled for choice, when you just have ultimate channels that it, you just laziness creeps in so oh yeah you know, at, at every stage of my career i'm at my most creative when i'm working in sort of rarefied air you know because it's still too new to really get your yeah. arms around it's interesting to me that you're you're such a technological guy but having been to your house your house is does not i mean you have you have that you have that's really cool sort of sciencey piece on your you know like above the what is that by the way is it like an old... Oh, above my fireplace? Yeah. Oh, it's like a switchboard generator from a telephone exchange. Oh, it's really... Oh, it, cool. Yeah. But, but, but your house is very not... I mean, it's not... It doesn't seem that technological. In... <laughs> you know, I go there to escape it, really. You know, it's the last thing I want to do for relaxation. Sure. I just like to go for a walk in the marshes or, you know, sit, yeah. sit and stare out to the sea. It's a night. It's really cool. And, and there's not... Guys, there's not sand. There's just like billions and billions of shell pieces right. on on the beach, <laughs> and it feels really cool on your feet. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it flips me out. Like if you, I mean, listen, I um, when I was in high school, uh, Aliens Ate My Buick was in my cassette player. Nice. Back when people <laughs> needed cassette players, Kyle. Very appropriate. Uh, I wish that was open. Oh, that I, I knocked have, I, yeah, I would have spilled water on myself. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, so it, it like that that album to me was like that was so much of my senior year of high school was mm. Alien, Aliens Ate My Buick. Mm. And so if you had said to me like Someday you're going to go to Thomas Dolby's house and just hang out. Uh I I don't think I would have believed it. Mm. I don't think I would have believed it. Um and maybe you didn't. Maybe I didn't. Did oh, it not happen? Fuck well, you guys. <laughs> what? It was crazy as Thomas Dolby was thinking at that time. I wonder if I'm going to meet some kids in high school right now. <laughs> oh, well. You know, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. So um, recently I read in two different Tom York interviews that he went to school, same school as me. True. Abingdon School. But that one day he walked into the practice block at his school. And there was this guy with a synthesizer that he built himself, and it was Thomas Dolby, and this is what inspired him to get into, you Whoa. know, America. So, now, we went to the same school, but I had been gone for eight years by the time any of radio had ever went there. No, no, and you got to just take the credit on that one. <laughs> well, well, yes and no. I mean, in a way, I'm not sure if I can let it go by, you know? <laughs> Are you just not admitting you were the creepy guy that hung out at high school way too long? <laughs> That's the song. It's based on him. I'm a creep. <laughs> yes! It's, uh, so, so what happens now is basically Thomas starts to flutter a little bit, and then we find out he's just been a holographic projection the this time. entire time from that switch he's really above sitting his fireplace. At his fireplace he's right really sitting Yeah, he's really actually staring at me. Uh, have you, did you? Do you know Tom York? Have you ever worked nope. with him? No, no, I've met him. No, oh, okay. Um, Actually, it's good. you got me thinking now. It's like I could do all the podcasts in a night. You could. If oh, I could do that. Yeah. If you could do that just like that, yeah. No, this. you can't do that. No, you get in five years. Someone else is right. going to do it. Right. In five years, someone's going to actually have it. Yeah. So, uh, so in general, everything good. You ha you happy? Was stuff yeah, no, really happy. Uh, I mean, I've had an incredible five or six years where I've done exactly what I wanted artistically. This is sort of since I came back to music, and not had to compromise anywhere along the road. You know, so so I've had nobody breathing down my neck. Never looked at a sheet of 
figures or an Excel and thought, hmm, maybe I should do this instead and cut some costs or make more money or whatever. Purely artistic-driven decisions all the way down the road. And uh, it's been absolutely great, uh, but I'm not sure if it's sustainable. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, if, if it seemed that you know something you were working on was going to blow up like top of the charts again, would you, and this might be a dumb question, but would you want that to happen or would you not because of all the shit that comes with it? Well, I think it is much more celebrity driven now even than it was when I started. You know, because you could, when I started, you could be uh, a wonderful musician and not really give a toss about your appearance, you know, and, and that was sort of okay, you know. But this, these days that's just not true because it's just generation by generation, each new star that's come through has ticked more and more boxes, you know, like you were saying. You've also got to be able to market yourself and the rest of it. And, you know, you look at these awful talent shows, but the average contestant on there, you know, can sing and dance like a fool and they look like a model, you know, and, uh, and I don't know how it happens any more than I know how athletes keep breaking world records. You know? <laughs> but our species is evolving and we're just getting better at jumping over a bar or, or you know, running around a track or whatever. And that's Similar with entertainers. Well, I think a lot of it probably has to do with the localization of our, our of our global culture. Is that it's it, it's I I assume that a lot of those people were out there before, but there was just no way to find them. And so now you could you know you could live in any you could live in sub-Saharan Africa, but if you had an internet connection, you uploaded the right video, mm. then all of a sudden mm. they're gonna find you know like people are gonna. Everyone has a beacon in their pocket and in their home, which which we didn't have before. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's certainly true. But I mean, I think the the ante has just gone up and up and up in terms of the technical ability. Yeah. And then the other thing is that you know, the main consumers of music, whether they're paying for it or pirating it, are you know hot young people that are you know looking to mate with somebody. I mean, that's just <laughs> it's always been that way. And and the primary performers they're going to pay any attention to is going to be people they want to fuck. Yeah, that's true. I'm a 55-year-old bald white guy. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sort of ruining myself out. I mean, by rights, I should be producing. I should be in the back seat, you know, out of the limelight. Yes, but so. you just walk outside Sunset Strip, say you're a 55-year-old bald white guy, no problem. <laughs> no problem. I still do believe, though, that 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 content has a lot more say necessarily than it used to that yeah. the right piece of content at the right time that it doesn't matter who you are what you look like it'll ca- i mean i think people are more ex- even as even in as much as the like the american idolization of our culture i still believe that um so much because we're a niche culture and so much weirdness has been embraced that I don't think it. I don't think it necessarily. I mean, maybe to maybe to go that pop star track, like the you know the Britney or the Gaga track, maybe. But I still think you can be you can look like whatever. But if you make a cool thing, then enough people are gonna you know you can reach enough people directly, and it still can it can still can work. Yeah. No, I think you're probably right. And I think also things things uh, you know it's like swings and roundabouts. Really, I mean, you know, I'll give you a good example. So there's this band in the UK that I I used to produce, Prefab Sprout. Mm-hmm. who I adore, and I did two and a half albums for them and, and loved those albums. And they're fronted by a genius songwriter called Paddy McAloon, who is very, very reclusive and very reactionary, and his health is not that good. And he lives in the far north of England, 
and uh, he's gotten very ornery over the years and his stuff has become more and more rare but he doesn't really do interviews very much and because of his bad health he's put on quite a lot of weight he's got you know white hair and a beard and he wears these sort of strange um, uh, dystopian specs and things like this and um, he's five years ago if he was reviewed people might sort of say yes but have you seen Paddy recently but now he's gotten to a point where he's viewed as a sort of mythical character <laughs> and, and a really interesting thing happened um he, he recorded a new album, and there'd been a tribute site called the Prefab Sprout Project where fans had been... Because he hadn't been putting much out. Uh, fans had been doing tribute versions of his songs or writing songs in the style of, right? Most of them were pretty average, pretty bad. There's one guy on there who's actually very talented and sounds quite a lot like Paddy and is able to write songs, you know, that actually you could almost imagine would be a Paddy B-side. So here's what happens. So Paddy records a new album, hands it into his record company, and a secretary in the company leaks it to SoundCloud. So now there are 10 original Prefab Sprout masters out on the internet flying around, and word goes out that they've been leaked. But somebody else says, no, that's the Prefab Sprout project. That's not really Paddy. That's a tribute thing. And it becomes very, very hazy, you know, whether this thing is real or not. And so this legend has grown up in the last six months of this legendary album that's going to come out. Have we actually heard the real thing? Or do, was what we, you know, it's almost like, you know, Elvis has left the building. <laughs> and now Paddy has been photographed once or twice up in his native place, wearing a white suit with a cane, dark glasses, you know, standing by a stream. And he's like the Yeti. I mean, he's, he's, <laughs> he's become this mythical creature. And... In Britain, we don't have very many of them. We don't have very many indigenous, homegrown sort of weirdos. You know, what we're really good at is recycling great grooves that we steal from Africa or (laughs) Jamaica or Detroit or wherever it is. You know, we put a bit of a cool twist on them and re-export them to the rest of the world. And you guys all think it's original. (laughs) Uh, But in fact, our dirty little secret is that we have very little indigenous music, you know. So here is a true indigenous original that, you know, dwells in the hills of County Durham and people are suddenly very, very excited about him. Oh, that's, oh, really, that's, that's really, really cool. cool. That's an awesome yeah. story. Yeah. Uh, so we'll check out the Prefab Sprouts as mm-hmm. well. Um, well, it, this has been so much fun, and, and I, I hope that you get some rest. I hope, you. That you, yeah. <laughs> I hope that you just you can go home and stare out at the sea for yes. a month or so. Yes. What do you, what do you, what, what's next? Well, I'm, I've got to edit um, video from my tour. So I just finished three months of touring, and, and I did the film, and then in the middle section of the show, in the, in the end section I played songs, the middle section of the show I interviewed local celebs. And they might be musicians, they might be writers, sound designers, and so on. Just just people in each city. That's what I was going to do. All right. Well, yeah. I did it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, that's what I was going to do with you, what you asked me to do. <laughs> that I had. I'm just breaking your balls. My balls are broken. Okay. Um, so uh, so we, we filmed these interviews, and they included people like Reggie Watts. Yep. Nice. Like... Um, Walter Murch, mm-hmm. legendary sound designer who did all of Coppola's stuff, you know, won an Oscar for Apocalypse Now and did the conversation and um, uh, American Graffiti and stuff like that, uh, through to Storm Large, who came on stage and did a version of Kita Ferrari, uh, uh, through to, in, in Hollywood, I, I interviewed two film slash TV composers, Michael uh, Giacchino, who is, does yep. most of J.J. Abrams stuff, uh, Star Trek and Lost and Alias and so on. <laughs> Lost. <laughs> got paid every week for that genius no but he is amazing i love i love the alias theme too yeah. like, that guy writes really cool he stuff. Does, he does and dave porter who did breaking bad 
which featured two of my songs. Uh, and uh, yes. so I just interviewed them on stage and talked about. So it's kind of like what I'm doing is sort of a bit like inside the actor's studio, but for the sound and music world. Mm-hmm. You know, where that show gets a different kind of interview. You know, out of a, out of a, an actor or a director. You know, than than you'd see on you know Letterman. And so I'm going to try and make a show out of it. So I'm just going to edit these videos and put them on YouTube as a series, and uh, see if I can get somebody to back me to go do it uh, for real. Oh, that's a really cool idea. Really cool. Yeah. Yeah. You. I, I'm pretty sure I heard you in the in the A1 car wash, right? On Breaking Bad. Yes, hyperactive. Yes, hyperactive. Yeah. yeah. Which, by the way, is a really fun. So I hope this doesn't upset you. It's a really fun song to do karaoke because uh-huh. it's it's the song so energetic, and I love the the videos. I, the video is still burned into my brain oh, of the sort of puppety mm-hmm. like yeah, your, yeah. your body's all. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I now I can't get and now it's what what's in my head is a I just want the key to yeah, her right. Ferrari like that that fucking album now I'm gonna have to go I'm gonna go back and listen to Aliens <laughs> sing a more of a song <laughs> how am I doing how am I doing um, but uh, it's good to see you and and you know we've sort it's been fun to kind of become email pals with you and anytime you're over here please let me know and I would love to take you out to a meal I'll do that Chris that would be great and uh, thanks for having me on of course yeah good to see you Thomas Dolby. Enjoy your burrito, everyone. Cool. Where's, in, where's enjoy your burrito coming? Is that like your catchphrase? It's that's a catchphrase that... Uh, are there actually burritos here? Because no. if so, I could murder one. <laughs> do, you want a, do you want a burrito? Well, I'm, I'm Lisa and I are going to grab something before I have to go to the uh, oh, okay, airport. To the airport. Yeah, yeah um, enjoy your burrito, just really quickly, was uh, when Jonah first moved to Los Angeles, he was broke, and he used to like to go to this one burrito shack and... The only good part of his day was eating that burrito, and halfway through he would get really depressed because he knew he was about to be done with it, and then the burrito would be done. And Real dark time. Yeah. Real dark time. And so he said, he said what he ended up having to do was to learn to enjoy the burrito as it was happening, and so on one of our first episodes of the podcast, 445 episodes ago, yeah. we, he told the story, and then it sort of became this mantra, and at the end we said, oh, enjoy your burrito. In other words, enjoy the present as it's happening. And so okay. that's... That's yeah. the way that we end the, the podcasts now. Because we, we live so much of the future or the past and never really just kind of yeah. like in the moment. So, that, that's, so that's I put it in the most simplest of terms, food. <laughs> Enjoy your burrito. In my household, uh, we have burri- a burrito moment. Um, because once with small children, we, you know, we had for three kids. And, and we used to, when we couldn't be bothered to cook, we would go to Trace Amigos and bring back burritos. And, uh, <laughs> at one point, this happens with small kids. You know, my wife was so upset with what was going on that having just gone out to the Trace Amigos, she threw the burrito on the floor, jumped uh, as high as she could, in, <laughs> and the contents exploded all over the uh, all over the, the kitchen cabinets. You know, I mean, like in three sixty perfect. <laughs> so um, yeah, this is known as a burrito moment. <laughs> That's, that's great. I don't want to shoot that like on a red camera like with the Wachowskis. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Phantom cam. Just put a, just put a bunch of cameras all around in a circle and explode the burrito in the middle. Just watch it spin. Now leaving nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. For more than 2 centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. 
Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.